going to suck today. You're going to suck today. The Indy 500 is kind of like, take Lamar Daytona 24-hour race, compress it down to 500 miles, and then drive as fast as you can. Well, either be a grandma and finish 10th, or go like crazy and we'll finish 25th. And I said, you know what the difference in prize money is? And I'm looking it up. It's like 180,000 difference in prize money. He goes, I will drive like a grandma. He passes like five cars in places where even the old time indie drivers are going, uh, you can't do what he just did. All that matters is winning that race. A good points day is terrible. They, I mean, they don't even have a podium. It's just one guy. Second and third don't even get the get champagne or skim milk even. They get nothing. You know, the strategy is pretty simple. Go as fast as you can. Go. Don't stop. More go. <laughs> Try not to suck more than you have to. You know, win at the slowest speed possible. Well, that's what Alexander Rossi did. I don't know. Every time I get into a race car, I quote The Little Mermaid. Do you think Alex is ever going to listen to this? Okay. Welcome. This is a new podcast. You've probably heard that phrase a thousand times in the last couple of years, but this is something different. Something we call, it's not the car. I'm Sam Smith. I'm a motorsport and an automotive journalist. I've spent years testing cars for places like Road and Track and attending races all around the world. This podcast ties into that a little. It's stories about people and about racing. Sometimes we'll take a big story and make it smaller and easier, pulling apart what matters. Sometimes we'll do the opposite and we'll take a smaller moment or a bit of time and pull it out into something larger. But the point, is in the name. It's always going to come back to the title of the show. It's not the car. Meaning, one, the speed isn't in the machine. Two, the story isn't in the machine. And in either case, the one place it comes back to is the people. Because we're people. Stories are about humanity, and that's what's interesting. And to that end, I'm not the only person here. I'm just one third of the show, one third of the host. I'm sharing it with two of the best possible people I could do this with. Guys, you want to introduce yourself? Thanks, Sam. I'm Jeff Brown, and I'm, I guess I'm the engineering technical side of this trio. Um, my job is to make race cars go faster as a race engineer. Um, I've had the good fortune of doing that with a lot of different cars over my career, everything from Indy cars to sports cars, Lamad, Daytona, even global rallycross cars and, um, top fuel dragsters and all that kind of stuff. So, um, lots of stories accumulated over the last, whatever, 40, 50, uh, 50 years. I started racing go-karts when I was little. So, uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to telling some stories about how people did all these amazing things. And, and um, it'll be fun to, to, to do that with all of you guys. And I'm Ross Bentley. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with both of you. And Jeff, a long time ago, we started working together. Uh, when I was, uh, well, I, I, I describe myself as an XXX former, former, former driver. Because uh, <laughs> it was so long ago. Uh, I think I was. I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Wait, if but, you were a former, 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 former driver, doesn't that mean you're still actually? I, I, I'm really confused. I, I got to add those up there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I didn't get it quite right, but uh, yeah, I used to drive, and I used to drive cars that Jeff engineered. So we had some time, some great times working together, uh, making making the car faster, but in the process, it made me faster as well. And you know, today mostly I'm a I'm a driver coach, but 
really what I think I am is I'm a, I'm a question asker. If that's, uh, that, that's really what I like to do is ask questions and figure out why things happen the way they do. And a lot of times it's looking at a driver and going, why are they doing that? And what happens if they did that? So that's really kind of my job. Plus, I guess I'm a little bit, sorry, Sam, but I'm a little bit of a Sam wannabe. Like, what? I like, I like I'm writing. not even a Sam wannabe. Who would be a <laughs> Sam wannabe? Ross, come on. I, I, I like writing. So um, sometimes <laughs> I, in the process of trying to figure out the why, I write and it helps me figure out why. But I, I think that's a really good point, right? So the reason we kicked off this show, and, and it, it grew out of conversations, you and I have known each other for several years, and, and it grew out of conversations we had about the reasons behind why we make the choices we do. And that's one of the reasons I find Jeff so interesting, too, because his entire job is pulling apart, both of you, is pulling apart how and why people do what we do in life in race cars and choices among others among by ourselves and that's like that's the whole point of this show and on that note we should probably get to what we're going to talk about today so today we're we're going to talk about a pretty special event and a pretty special running of a pretty special event we're, we're going all the way back to the 2016 indy 500 and we're going to pull apart the time that a rookie an american rookie won one of the most important races in the world, certainly the most important race in this country, in the hundredth running of that race in a way that it's not uncommon to win it, but the way that it happened was particularly exciting and also said a lot about the people involved and a lot about the race involved and, and about the time and frankly, why we keep going back to Indy at all. So the way this, this show works, when we, we first started talking about this, we we were trying to figure out a way to get a big dose of information on tape so we could move on, so we can bring everybody up to speed without spending a whole hour telling a story. And the story itself of what happened, in this case, Indy in 2016, will filter back into the, into the, the show as we go on. But just to give you a great big brain dump on how it works, we were trying to figure out how that happened or how that could happen. And in this case, what we came up with is basically, um, uh, it's orbits three points. One, I can't shut up. Two, when you feed me a lot of coffee, I really can't shut up. Ross is laughing, but it's true. And three, um, I love history and stories and racing and speed and the reasons behind all this. So we figured, all right, uh, feed Sam a bunch of coffee and give Sam some bullet points. And Sam is going to give you the uh, matrix injection brain dump on how this all happened. What, in this case, happened in the 2016 Indy 500. And then we'll go from there. Does that still sound all right to you guys? Yeah. I, I, I can't coffee. wait. <laughs> I can't wait. And Jeff's, Jeff's got his coffee. So I got yes. my coffee. Yeah. Okay. So, so before we go into this, I was, I was reading a bunch of stuff this weekend, kind of prepping for this, just taking down notes. And I came across a great quote that I want to come back to later, but I want to kick all this off with it. It's from Rob Buckner, who is the current director of the IndyCar program for Chevrolet. You know, Chevrolet is one of the engine suppliers. Everybody runs the same car, but you can run a Chevrolet or a Honda engine, blah, 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 blah. But the quote is, Race cars are really just giant energy balancing equations. And I love that because it says so much while saying so little. But now we should do the caffeinated thing. So I just drank a bunch of coffee. I have a glass of water. Take a big sip of it. And here we go. Okay. Start. It's more than 100 years ago. It's 1909. It's America. The car is a new thing. It's been around a few decades, but we don't know what to do with it. We can't make it work affordably. 
all this while most of the homes in America are lit by candlelight. And some people still think electricity is the work of the devil. And the Titanic hasn't sunk yet because she's still being built. It's a long time ago. Just after the turn of the century, this Detroit inventor who would later turn out to be, I mean, basically turned out to be a giant jerk. But he figures out how to build and sell cars affordably. He releases something called the Ford Model T. Everyone goes nuts. It genuinely changes the world. And the car itself becomes a thing that everybody cares about. And naturally, anytime we care about something that moves, the first question is, what do we do with it? Well, when it moves, we just start racing it. We look at them, we say, screw it, we start racing stuff. Now, this is 1909, remember? So cars don't go that fast. We still have most of our cities full of horses and horse poop. The races that we're running are there mostly to see which of these cars can last the longest. These are like these are big, important international events that are going slower, that have an average slower uh, sl have an average speed slower than what you and I might run on the way to McDonald's. Maybe not you. I probably really like a Big Mac too much. That's not the point. So that same year in 1909, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway opens the public. It's basically a 2.5 mile long dirt loop outside of Indianapolis. It's covered with crushed rock and tar, and it's great. Except when they have the first race, it's a Thursday. It's August, and then there's all this pomp and circumstance. And then people, people just start dying and then they die a lot. And it's kind of a problem. They are dying left and right, killing spectators and mechanics and going through fences. Everybody looks around. They decide, well, we need to make this safer. They pave the thing with bricks. The whole track is paved with bricks because this is supposedly safer. Don't know why it's safer. It happened. Speeds rise. The death kind of stops. 1911, they have this first big 500 mile race that's designed to bring people into town. Over the years, as the cars advance, that race gets faster and faster. Up until the mid-90s was kind of this big science lab where Everybody took chances, invented stuff left and right. That changed a little, but what we have now is still pretty neat. The cars are all the same make and model, but there are low-flying airplanes in this 230-mile-an-hour needle-thread speed lab where everything is about millimeters and chance and luck and skill and risk and experience. And then, 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 in 2016, on the 100th running of the 500, a 24-year-old kid from California won it on his first try. Now, this was the 100th run of the race. It was a big deal. The place sold out for what was believed to be the first time in its history. It's the largest by attendance event that year. Largest sporting facility in the world. More than a quarter of a million people. This American kid was a former F1 driver for backmarker teams. It's his first 500. It's only his second time on an oval ever. And the first time he ran on an oval ever was a month before. He's been in IndyCar a handful of months and this race is just massively competitive. There are 54 lead changes, the second highest number of lead changes in history. There are restarts and yellows and carnage and crashing. And our boy, our California boy, his name is Alexander. He starts 11th. The race is long. There are dogfights. There are just a set number of known leaders fighting it out the whole time. And then we get to the last 25 laps. And from about lap 175 on, it becomes extremely clear that nobody's quite sure what's going to happen because everybody's paying attention to fuel. And that makes the winner a winner on strategy, not necessarily balls, which is also important at Indy, but this is different. It basically means that whoever's in the right timing of the pits and what's left and how fast they can go. And the key word there is can, because you go too fast, use too much fuel, car, tire, etc. Right. And so that point, some drivers are just conserving or praying or, railing or in the right place and hammering and it doesn't matter. And by the last 10 laps, 
most of the cars hadn't pitted since the caution on lap 166. It's a 200 lap race, remember? And our boy, our Rossi, through pit timing and risk and luck, just a lot of luck and a lot of smarts and a lot of planning and reacting on the part of him and his team and the guy planning his fuel strategy. We'll get to in a bit. He gets to the front when nobody really thought that would happen. And then he's leading with a few laps to go. And it has happened before. People have been this close. They've been leading, lost it, crashed, run out of fuel. He's squeezing fuel for two last white knuckle laps hoping, praying, not knowing if he's going to finish, not knowing what happens when he finishes because he's never been to Indy before. He slows. He slows even further. His last lap is 179 mile an hour average. That is 50 miles an hour slower than he qualified at. And even then, 179 miles an hour over two and a half miles. Remember, that is 50 seconds of lap. It has to feel like he could get out and walk. Just... They have to be the longest 50 seconds of his life. He is waiting. There are corners. He is trying not to do anything extremely stupid for 50 seconds. There's a guy behind him who's closing. And then, then he makes it. He is visibly shocked on the podium. He is, he looks like a deer in headlights. He has tears. He had no idea what to do. And neither did the rest of the place, which goes nuts because an American rookie just won the Indy 500. Somehow. Did I get most of that, guys? Wow. That was wow. a great story. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. I'm going I'm I'm to go, go collapse some coffee and sit back for the next, the next one. I'm yeah, going to go good. collapse in the corner. That was um, good. But yeah, that's, that, that quote, though, right? That's what I come back to. It's an equation of balance. What, so what, what goes through the your first head thing, you, As you said that, I'm kind of like, race car... What, Race cars are big energy balancing things. Is that kind of what you said? Wow. It's like, like is, yeah. I, I, I kind of want to go, okay, Jeff, you can run with that for the next hour. But I also <laughs> look at that and go, actually, that's what drivers do. Giant we, energy balancing equations, we balance right? Energy. We balance the weight load on the car and we do all sorts of things. And, you know, there's a point where we got to, I guess, get rid of some energy by getting on the brakes, although not at Indy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, there's a point, but there's another time when we're just going to, we're going to use up as much energy, energy as we can until somebody says, uh, stop using so much energy. Right. We got to save some of that. <clears throat> so save I think energy. that's, I mean, that's, it's a fascinating quote. And I love it. That is a good quote. I've always said that uh, making a race car go fast is just a giant thermodynamics problem. <laughs> right? I mean, it is. You're, you're, you're making heat. You got to make heat the most efficient, as efficient as you can. You don't want it in the tire necessarily. You don't want it in the engine, in the exhaust. You don't want it, <clears throat> you know, you want to use that energy as good as, as efficiently as possible. And Rossi was, I mean, he did that. That was, that's what he did in this race is used all the energy he had as efficiently as possible. It's pretty interesting how, how they arrived at doing that. But, <clears throat> but, but Jeff, you say Rossi did that and yeah, you know, Hey, I'm the XXXX former, 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 whatever driver. So yeah, <laughs> hey, it's the driver that won the race. But if there was ever a race where it wasn't just the driver, this was one of them. And right. I mean, yeah. the team and everything and, and you know, the strategy and every and, and some of it was good and some of it was bad. Some of, I like, mean, some of that was <clears throat> we can get into why they decided to do that, but as you were saying, Ross, a lot of that was coaching you know it's a team sport right we you know it's not the car this was coaching between brian herda who is his strategist uh and 
Rossi. They were trying to decide how they were going to win this race. And there was a couple points in there where Rossi was like, you know, they gave him the fuel number that he had a hit to make it. And he's like, possible is <laughs> he, he said, there's no way I can do that. And, and Brian Herta had to convince him and coach him to, to do that. And they adopted that strategy well before halfway. It wasn't the last, you know, the last stint. They, they committed to that about lap 60. So, and so Jeff, it took another two hours of coaching. So, so tell me, so one of the, we were talking about this last week. So, so one of the things that, that, that hit me right after this happened, I watched this, I think you guys did too. I watched this race live and I remember going on Twitter, uh, maybe like 20 minutes after it happened. And there was a British motorsport journalist who watched Rossi in his career in Europe. Cause the guy came up through kind of sort of through the F1 ladder. He ran GP2, he ran LMP2 for a bit, but basically he had, he was a test driver and a reserve driver. He started, I think five Grands Prix and then came to IndyCar kind of as a, you know, way to keep his career moving in the direction that made sense. But the, this journalist after this happened said something like, and, and I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something like, well, I guess I've seen it all. If, uh, you know, a backmarker kind of nothing burger guy from Formula One can show up at Indy and win it, it truly must be a dice roll. It truly must be just a collection of chance. And that's so, I, I, even then, that's so unfair. It, there's so much to unpack there. So how, how exactly, that from an engineering standpoint, how do you go about planning what you can plan and then acknowledging what you can't plan for 200 laps at a place like that, where there's so much that happens and so much that goes wrong, right? Well, I mean, to me, first of all, I think that guy has it, <clears throat> has it wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he does. The, the, right. the most fun races that I've won and, and okay, I admit I'm the strategist, right? So if, if you win a race because the driver is just does amazing things and he just outdrives everybody. That's cool. That's still a win and you get champagne <clears throat> and you win and you get the points and all of that's cool. And I'm not downplaying that at all. But when, as a strategist, when you can have more of an impact into that whole thing, because you did some fuel strategy and you win that race, to me, those are my most memorable wins. Uh, and I was thinking about that, you know, the, the wins that I've had, probably the three most memorable wins and the ones I cherish the most were all fuel mileage races. Really? And, you know, we won some amazing races on fuel mileage. This was an amazing race on fuel mileage. And the thing is, you, you never set out. I, I guarantee you that Rossi and Brian Herta didn't set out before the green flag or in their meeting pre-race and go, okay, we're going to win this on fuel mileage. And here's what we're going to do. They were forced, and this happened happens more often than not on when somebody wins a race on fuel mileage it's because they were forced by some circumstance into that attempt they weren't only going to win if they took that risk and tried to make that work they didn't have the speed they didn't have the you know they had some setbacks they had mistimed missed opportune yellow flag something forced them into that and they and the the guy who picks it up First, the guy who goes, wow, okay, we're screwed here. If we do everything like normal, we're going to be 10th or 15th. Let's roll the dice and we're either going to be maybe 20th or win. And those are the kinds of 
strategy decisions. And that's what they did. That's what Brian Herta did in the middle of that race. Hey, I mean, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, I've, I've never been to the 500. I've watched it on, on TV years and years and years, but it's, it's always seemed to me like the, the process of that race is a process of losing things. Even if, even if everything goes right for you, if things could not go better, right. It is short of the years where somebody's shown up with a car that is a, such a massive overdog, right. You know, the rear engine revolution all the way up to, you know, the Penske Elmore Mercedes stuff of the nineties that was just huge overdog. But outside of those cases, it's a process of, or it seems like a process of losing something every X number of laps and then dealing with it, figuring out how to make the best of it. Is there, is that how it looks on the ground? What is it like when you're, when that's going down? Yeah, it's, it's a, <clears throat> I've been lucky enough to do Indy, I think eight or nine times, <clears throat> never won it, um, came close, but you know, that doesn't count in whatever tiddlywinks and some other things, I think. But um, <clears throat> it's you, there's so many things that can go wrong. There's so many things that can happen that it's, it's sometimes rolling the dice. Like he said, it's a roll of the dice on who wins it. They rolled the dice and they did it better than anybody else. I don't care what you say. He's standing there with the Borg Warner trophy and pouring milk over his head. 32 other guys aren't didn't, yeah. didn't get to do that. Yeah. And they did a better job. And however you get there, nobody who's won it or lost Indy would ever say, well, he won because he got lucky <laughs> or he got, you know, a break or he won it on fuel mileage. They don't have the Borg Warner trophy and he gets a smaller one that says, well, he just won it because of fuel mileage. No. <laughs> yeah. They, Tom was he, also here, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> right. <clears throat> and that's the, the thing that I think is cool is the whole decision-making process about when they did that. And then, you know, I, I'm interested to hear Ross talk about how you, okay. So if I'm the strategist or I'm Brian Herta and I say, to Alexander Rossi, okay, save fuel, save fuel. We got to make this. And, and you got to do 34 laps of fuel. And the most anybody has done the whole weekend, the whole race so far is 32. Somebody went 32 laps with a couple pace laps, you know, early. So you got to go two laps longer than anybody else has ever done this race. How do you do that? You know, it's, it's, Ross can talk about how you, you know, how, how do you do that? If I tell you that, Ross, what do you do? Well, I think the interesting thing there is if, if Scott Dixon's engineer says to him, Scott, we need to save fuel. Scott knows how to do it. Right. <laughs> Probably better than any IndyCar driver in history. Yep. But Alexander Rossi is there for his first time. I don't know whether during practice they did a lot of fuel save practice. So there was a little bit of making it up as you go along. And, you know, for the, for this journalist that maybe was kind of taking a little bit of a poke at both Indy and right. Rossi, right. Uh, you know, it, the fact that I, there are many, 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 many drivers, if you put them in that exact same situation and Brian Herter's on the radio saying, you need to do this and this and this, and you need to get to this, this lap number or fuel mile, fuel number. Um, they wouldn't be able to adapt. And I think one of the things that Rossi did so well was he did adapt and he figured it out. So, you know, to your question, Jeff, is what do you do as a driver? 
uh, well, some of it is you just got to try some things. And very quickly you learn that, you know, a, you know, just a breathe of the throttle saves more fuel than a big snap of the throttle, that kind of thing. And it's just thinking about, okay, what can, you know, can I put less steering angle in? Place like Indy, and, you know, maybe there's a time to kind of let me defend oval racing for a moment. <laughs> Do wait, that. wait. Okay, let's let's back up, though. I mean, it is worth defending because, and be- frankly, before I knew anything about it, you know, it was younger, you look at it and it looks it looks dull on TV nine times out of ten. It especially looks dull if you don't know what you're watching. And it especially, especially looks dull if you don't know what you're watching and you don't care about racing to begin with. So most people think it's dull and boring. We don't. Defend it. Go. You have 30 seconds. So first of all, I'll guarantee you it does not look dull the first time you're coming down the front straightaway and there's that turn one and it's like, I'm supposed to go in there with my foot flat to the floor? No, <laughs> no, not that at is not dull. Uh, so yeah, I mean, some people go, okay, great as a driver, but as a spectator, no, the, what does a driver do at Indy that is so special? And I think anybody that's ever done any kind of road course stuff or anything like that, you know, they're going to go, yeah, it's just turning left, but the precision it takes is off the charts. It, you know, I always say that if a road racer, you know, they come to a corner and their line varies by six inches. Well, at Indy, it's, if your line varies by six inches, you're probably going to end up in Methodist hospital. For you sure. know, you it's, need to be within six tenths of an inch. Like it, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah, and, and, and you think about that, well, it's like, that's, what is it? You know, 230 miles an hour. I actually did the math on this earlier. It's like 330 feet a second. Yeah. I, I, I can't process that. And even it's if you've been around the place field a bunch, a second. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time anybody, and, and by the way, if, uh, if, if you ever want an experience that's just, you know, blow your mind, go to the Indy 500 and <laughs> get yourself in a position where you can be sort of on the front straightaway at some point and just stand there and watch a car go by and you're like, oh, what did I just see? Right. Like yeah. it, it, it's, I'm Jeff, I mean, you, you're, uh, you're in pit lane and cars go by and yes, over time you kind of, you know, you get become accustomed to it, but there's a point where you're just going, uh, what just happened? Impossible. Yeah. Impossible. I mean, <clears throat> so quick story about what Rossi think about a rookie Rossi doing this. Like you said, Sam, what second oval race? Yeah. And, and this is pretty big oval with no banking, really, <laughs> yeah, nine yeah. degrees. I mean, this is a serious place. To put that in perspective of what Rossi must have been thinking during that whole month of May, and then the race, is I ran a driver at the Indy 500, uh, Michele Alberato. So he had done his F1 career at Ferrari. One, he had started, I don't know, somebody will look this up, 200 races, I think. Nearly won the world championship as an Italian in a Ferrari. Great career in Formula One. Came to IndyCar. I got to run him in his rookie season. I had in no IndyCar. idea you did this. This is the, the, when was this? What year was this? I, Would have been ninety six. <laughs> I love how you just toss this stuff in the conversation. Like, oh yeah, I ran uh, El Rito at the thing. And I, what? God, yeah, go I on. Think I'm it was sorry. Ninety six. It was the first. Jeff, year. that's cool as hell. <clears throat> yeah, Michaela was a, what's that? First year of IRL. First year of IRL where we ran the Indy racing league, yeah. Champ cars. Yeah. The the, the I didn't even know he cars. came over. Man. Yeah, so I ran him in a Reynard and I was his engineer and super cool guy, but the what I was going to say not to get too far off path, but um 
So in Formula One, there's a corner at Imola called Tamburillo, which is a chicane now for reasons a lot of people know about. But anyway, it was a fast left-hander, like just Like incredible. bad fast, like spooky fast, like so spooky cool. Spooky fast. Yeah. Almost flat in a Formula One car on qualifying tires with a thousand yeah. horsepower. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was the scariest corner in Formula One. Everybody's like, ooh, daunting. And uh. and McKaylee was explaining that. <clears throat> and somebody asked him, I was standing there and somebody asked him, he goes, so what's it like going around the 8500 <laughs> track? And he says, well, it's daunting. Da, da, da. He goes, you know, it's like Tamburillo four times in 40 seconds. <laughs> and that's only one lap. And you got to do that again and again and again. It's the most daunting corner four times a lap. Yeah. And so that's that's what oval racing was like for him. And and, and again, that precision, uh, it, you, you've got to nail that. But as you say, there's this massive, uh, there's pressure from two different ways. One is if I... If I don't do this fast, you know, why am I here? Right. And then there's the, you know, it is the Indy 500. It is, you know, go to any country in the world and say, name a car race. I'm pretty sure the Indy 500 is going to be on that list. I mean, it's, it's like, the Coca-Cola, the Mickey Mouse. It's the, it's right. that, right? Exactly. So, so there's this massive, that whole part of it. And, you know, I guess kind of going back to your question, Jeff, a little bit is how do I save fuel? When you go through a corner at the speedway and you just like you come out of the corner and you straighten your hands, you open up the wheel, like you straighten the steering wheel, just a tiny, tiny, like I'm sure in the data, maybe you can barely, barely, barely see it, but you just open it up and you can feel the car go from, 229.15 miles an hour to 229.16 miles an hour. And yep. that's putting less scrub into the car and it's saving fuel. Yep. So <clears throat> one of the ways that you save fuel is just, can I make the corners a bigger radius? <laughs> oh, oh, that seems easy. Just run closer to the walls at 200 <laughs> and something miles an hour. You know, those walls that are pretty hard. Right. So, right. you know, it it's, it's not easy. It's unbelievably difficult. And the fact that he was adapting to that, and yes, he's got Brian Herta on the box, on the radio to him, and who Brian is very experienced, but Brian wasn't driving the car. Right. He was telling him, he was kind of giving him the target, but, and, you know, I, I, I didn't listen to the radio. That would have been nice, but I'm pretty sure Brian wasn't saying, okay, just be a little smoother with the throttle and, you know, open up your hands and let the car run freer coming out of the corners. You know, <laughs> I don't think he was giving him that kind of coaching. Nope. He was giving him the target and come on, you can do it. Figure it out. Exactly. And he, he said, um, <clears throat> Rossi said in a post interview that he figured it out. He finally figured it out. He said on the last stop, when Herta gave him the number, he said, there's no way I can do that. Impossible. No way. And then Hunter Ray was his teammate. He was a lap down, maybe two, but he was a lap down. And they used him or Rossi used him to draft. And Hunter Ray acknowledged that he was trying to help his teammate out. You know, Ryan wasn't going to win the race. So he was kind of running a pace that Rossi could draft off of him. So Rossi figured that out. You know, and I'm sure there was some team communication, but he got a draft off of Hunter Ray. 
And then he said that he figured it out and got the mileage. And they said, well, what did you figure out? And he had a big smile. He's like, well, I'm not telling you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which you won't. I mean, those are, on, on a road race, Ross, talk, I mean, if you want to save fuel on a road course, it's, there's a simple trick. Well, it's not simple. There's an, the way you do it, how you do it is hard, but it's much easier because you're lifting off the throttle. Yeah. And lift, talk lift about and that, coast. which you don't really do it indie much. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, it, on a road course, it's called lift and coast. And you just come down the straightaway, you lift your foot off the throttle, coast, and then brake. The, the tricky part about that is now you can actually brake later than you ever have before. That's the tricky part on a road course is getting the right timing of all that. But so, you know, as a driver, you get into this rhythm and it's just, you know, it's, it's brake, you know, it's on the throttle, on the throttle, on the brake. And you come down and you go through the corner. And now you've got to change that whole timing. And I think it's, you know, again, it's the reason why Scott Dixon is just so good. He's, he's able to adapt that timing of how much lift, how much coast, and then how much later can I break because I'm not carrying quite the same speed, even though it's like one, two miles an hour less, but it's different. And a guy like Dixon can adapt to that immediately. There is nobody else in IndyCars that can adapt like him. But Rossi was doing this on an oval with just, just, you know, a breathe of the throttle. You know, how you come out of the throttle is as important as how you get back into the throttle. And then matching that with, uh, with the opening your hands and letting the car run free. That, that's probably the key phrase. And if you could ask him now, and he would actually tell you, he'd kind of like, just let the car run free. Run let free. it go where it wanted to go. And that's just before the wall. <laughs> yep. And that's the thing about, I've, you know, uh, I've, like I said before, I've won some races on few mileage. I didn't, but we did. And looking at some of the data from Colin, it, it, when he's won those races and you look at him when he's saving fuel and his min speed in the middle of the corner, saving massive amounts of fuel will be as fast, sometimes faster than when he's going flat out. He'll lift way early, coast into the corner, but the minimum corner speed and the load and the G's, you if you just looked at that part of the data, you couldn't tell that he's saving fuel. Is is fuel saving different across, like the, I'm assuming the, the principles and the techniques are the same, but is it drastically different across tire and aero package and how the car works and strengths and weaknesses? Or is it all kind of the same basic knobs and dials? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, well, and Jeff's kind of going, I'm going to say as a driver, <laughs> yes, it is. But they're subtle things and the part of it and the part that I find fascinating about Rossi winning this race is, Jeff, you say, you know, I, he said, I figured it out. But he also said, I can't do it. And this is the interesting thing about race drivers is there is a moment in there where a lot of times it's like, I can't do it. I can't beat him. I can't, you know, I can't go any faster. But then it, they turn it around. Okay, this is a challenge. How am I going to do this? And I think that's that's what makes the best the best. How many times have we heard Lewis Hamilton on the radio saying, man, guys, these tires are not going to last. And then he does like 20 laps longer than everybody else and yep. beats them. Like he turns it around into this massive challenge. It's like, I'm just, I'm going to figure it out. And I, I mean, think that, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's the allure of the Indy 500, right? You, he, you know, I don't know that Brian Hurd had told him this, but when he said, I can't do it, there's no way, you know, my, if I was a strategist, I'd say, 
all right, well, then you're going to finish 20th. <laughs> Fine. Don't and drivers do don't you're react going well to, suck to that. Today. Right. You're we'll going finish, to suck today. We'll just finish 20th. I had a driver at Indy from Invelez who was, we were in a similar situation. We weren't going to win, but if we saved fuel, he, we could have got a top 10, yeah, the top 10. Otherwise we were going to have to make an extra pit stop and we were going to be 25th. And I told him that on the radio. He's like, I don't like driving slow. This is terrible. This, I'm going too slow. I am, I'm, I'm like an old lady, like a grandma out here. And I'm like, well, either be a grandma and finish 10th or go like crazy and we'll finish 25th. And, okay. and I said, you know what the difference in prize money is? And I'm looking it up. It's like 180,000 difference in prize money. He goes, I will drive like a grandma. <laughs> So motivation, inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So back up just so context with this. Cause so I've, I've, you know, I've run a couple of club races over the years and you, you look at, you start watching the, the feed from Indy and you do what anybody who's ever been in a race car, no matter how small and piddly the race car has ever done. And when the, when the driver's eye cam comes on, you start watching it and you start looking at it. And I, I remember several years ago, whenever it was, and they started, they, they opened up the app the Verizon app or whatever it was. So you could just pick a driver and just watch from their helmet. Like you, like, you know, like people have been able to do with F1 on pay-per-view for decades, but you pick a driver and you just watch the whole race in their helmet. You don't get the feed. You don't get the broadcast. You just get them. And I remember the first time I did that, I was making, making drinks. It was obviously Sunday. I was making drinks in my kitchen and I set it up on my laptop and just had it in the background. And at one point I, my eye caught it and it was Montoya or somebody just going around and around and around. And I watched it for a lap or two. And I thought, okay, I'm going to watch this and see how long it takes me to get exhausted. I put the drink down and it's going to stare it into the, into the monitor. And after like three laps, I want it out because the focus and then watching just how small his hand movements were. And then starting, like, if you pay enough attention after a while, you can start to see the, like the slip on turn in and like just how the car starts moving. And then you can start watching where the wind comes up and then just how much of a, a slingshotty needle thread it all is. And I mean, Ross, like, what is, so you've, you've actually driven at Indy and as you said, it was a long, 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 long time ago because you're a former, former, Thanks for former reminding person. Me. Yeah. You didn't have a riding, <laughs> yeah. you, did you have a riding mechanic? Oh no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you did? Oh yeah, okay. oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was the horse. It was the horse that was in front of the car pulling the car. So, exactly, yeah. But so and the question wheels. is, yeah. <laughs> so, so the question is, right, so like every, like at the end of the race, when everybody's almost out of tire, cars are light because they're light on fuel, like the weather's changed, the end of the day, wind might be kicking up. What is it like when any of that stuff is happening and the cars are, I mean, things get sketchy and dicey and weird and you're exhausted and how does it even feel? And I say, you got to save fuel. Yeah. And, and somebody yeah. says, don't drive fast. Yeah. <laughs> Concentrate well, in a different way, right? But don't let them pass you. Drive fast. Don't let anybody pass you, but save fuel. Right. That's, that's the thing. I mean, if somebody just said drive slow, yeah. Okay. Anybody can drive slow, right? But but drive fast. And, and Sam, you bring up a really really good point. So when I went through rookie orientation, way back in twelve in the twelve hundreds, um, you and Ray Haroon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Together. Yeah. <laughs> so I had this very. I was very very fortunate that I got a session, or basically I got some time with Rick Mears, four time Indy yeah. Indy five hundred yeah. winner, and so he takes me out in a pace car. And just drives around the track and we're having a conversation as he's driving this, I don't know, Camaro or Mustang or Corvette or something around the track. I don't remember what it was. All I remember is I'm sitting besides, beside Rick Mears, Rick Mears Rick having a conversation <laughs> while we're driving Mears, around the speedway. Man. Okay. 
this is kind of a cool experience. Yeah. And and what he shared with me in those few laps was just, I mean, it was part of the uh, a great moment in my life. Let's just put it that way, okay? You know, one of the things that he pointed out immediately was as you're coming up the front straightaway, look up the windsock on the top of the scoring pylon and note which way it's it's blowing. So if it's blowing straight ahead, the car is going to understeer or push as you turn into turn one. If it's blowing the other way, the car is going to get loose or oversteer. If it's blowing from the side, you don't quite know exactly what it's going to do, but you're going to, you have to prepare for that. And then as you go down the back straightaway, you look at the windsock on the top of the grandstand and turn three. And every driver, well, every good driver, every single lap for 200 laps, you're doing that. And then you are adjusting how you're going to drive that corner every single lap. So, you know, you watch it in that in-car view and you can kind of go, okay, they're just turning left, but it's those minute no. movements with the wheel and it's the calculation of which way is the wind blowing. And, oh, you know what? It's just a cloud came over the speedway. Okay, now it's going to change. It's going to change again. And by the way, I mean, during, during practice days, you learn really, really quickly there that you can have a car and it's like, I remember, you know, the year that I was there, I think Paul was a 224 or something like that, I think it was. And I can remember doing a lap that was like 219 on a practice day thinking, okay, we're, we're getting, we're getting better. We're, you know, and, and I'm going to say that, you know, when I was, uh, the year that I was there in 93, the, and that was 1993, not 1893, <laughs> the, the, you know, you uh, say that, but you have no proof. Is there a picture yeah. of you aging in an attic? Yeah, yeah, well, it could be, yeah. Uh, there were no photos back in 1893. That's, Camera that's hadn't been invented. Yeah, exactly. So I think the, from pole to 33rd was maybe eight miles an hour difference. Eight? I forget what. Eight? Holy Something like that. Really? Like I think, wow. Like I think, you know, in the past couple of years, it's been like four. Tenths, yeah. Nothing. We have I mean, spec cars now. Miles per hour, yes. Yeah. yeah. So there was more variation in the car. Anyways, so I'm doing 219 thinking, you know, okay, we're getting there. We're trying different things. We're playing with the setup, all this kind of stuff. And then in the afternoon, I can remember doing 214, coming out of turn two and going, like, I am using all the track. And I'm coming out of turn four and like my foot's going down and I'm trying to unwind the wheel. And it's just like, give me another half a mile an hour here. Like, you're just like everything you can do. You're trying to try just, you know, slightly different line. And again, that line is not varying by six inches, but it's by an inch or two, right? And you're trying everything and you come into the pits and the guys look at the side of the, the right side of the car and go, white walled it. Hmm. I, <laughs> so I've come out of the out of turn two and my tires are brushing against the wall and they've now got like white walls on the tires. Paint, yeah. <laughs> and you're thinking, <laughs> what just happened? Nobody touched the car. It was felt... At 219, it was almost like I could drive it with one hand. And now I'm like hanging on for dear life, thinking I'm going to die any moment here. And that's the that's the difference of just temperature, cloud cover, slight differences. And Jeff, I don't know, you know the magic of all that kind of stuff. But like how much, um, it, I, I don't know if I'll put you on the spot here, but uh, if the temperature drops at Indy by two degrees, how much of an impact does that have on aer aerodynamic downforce? I'd have to go back through my numbers, but it has an impact because I yeah. can tell you when I was doing it and they're much more sophisticated on this now, 
the weather was a big component of how we would set the car up. We would actually pick different air density situations to practice in. So we would go, okay, this afternoon we'd have our weather measurements much. I I brought a lot of that from my drag racing stuff, which is the weather's really important. The water grains, the air density, the barometric pressure, the density altitude, all of that for drag racing. I brought a bunch of that to the IndyCar stuff. And now they're way past that, but a difference in air density changes the downforce of the car. If the air's thinner, the way to think of it is if the air's thinner, you're going to make less downforce. You're going to have less drag. So the driver's going to feel the car as not as much grip because he's not, it's not being forced down to the ground as much because he doesn't have as much downforce. So the difference between a morning session and afternoon session, track temperature goes up, air temperature goes up 10 degrees. Track temperature is even more important because you got to remember you want the air density of the air that the car's running in, which is only a foot off the ground, right? So if the track gets hotter, that air is really hot. You lose a lot of downforce. So in the race, a guy like Rossi is dealing with all of those changes, like you were saying, Ross, looking at the windsock, but then he's got cars ahead of him who are also screwing up the air. He's, he doesn't see what the air is doing in front of him and how it's coming off the cars and what the what the air that's hitting his car looks like. And that changes from corner to corner. If he's behind four cars going into a corner, it's different than if he's 20 car lengths behind a car. And that changes constantly. And so that's what I think is cool is in a race like that, there's so many changing things the downforce, the air density, the track, then you got the the situation that he has to be um, saving fuel, not saving fuel, trying to make a number. And then he's got other guys on a completely different strategy. So there's a guy coming up behind him who's not saving fuel. They've already started saving fuel at half race. And this guy's on the, I know I'm going to have to make an extra stop. So my goal is to get as far out front as I can. I'm going like crazy. And then what do you do? Do you kind of try to hold that guy off? Do you let him go easy? Do you make it a little hard for him? And if you make it a little hard for him, do you burn a little too much fuel to do that? And that's going to put you off your deal? Or do you let him go easily, but then maybe he pulls out a big lead and he can make that stop, extra stop, and still beat you? There's a, a, a lot going on. So I I believe, and I've, I've written a piece about this, that in, in the the, uh, I think Sam, something I wrote when you were helping with road and track and you probably, you probably, well, given, piece. given your age, it was probably a fountain pen and, yes. and it was candlelight. So, and you know what, that's it. That. This is the last show I ever do. You're going to die because, soon and we just want to get the best out of you before that happens. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I, I think that a driver is, met, uh, they're a mathematician. They're a statistician. Like you have to do real time statistics. You have to, uh, you have to be an aerodynamicist. I, you know, I, I've read about Adrian Newey, the designer of the Red Bull cars, that he can almost like he can look at a car and he can visualize how the air flows over it. I think the best drivers at Indy do the same thing. It's almost Jeff. You were talking about like that car in front or the car behind. Like you're visualizing how the air is flowing over that car and how that's impacting me. And you know, and then 
the I think the I forget what I you know statistician scientist all this kind of stuff but in the end you're also a gambler yeah and and the best race drivers know this is worth a little risk and this isn't because and I you know going back to the defending of oval racing to this journalist that made that comment after the race I forget what year it was but it was like a couple of years after within two or three years after. Rossi winning the race in 2016, there is a clip of him towards the end of the race where after a restart, he passes like five cars <laughs> in places where even the old timer indie, indie drivers are going, uh, you can't do what he just did. And he is like on the inside, on the outside and up against the wall. And you're just like, you're watching it from his in car. And like, you're like, I'm, I'm crunching up going, ah, you can't do that. Watch out. You're going to die. And he does it. So, there's a guy that knows when to take a gamble and when not to. And I think that's one of the fascinating things about this race is they knew what they were doing, but they also knew that, you know, it might not work. And, and, and I think I agree with you, Ross, that it's knowing when to take a gamble and when not every race that I start as a strategist, there's some risk tolerance level that I kind of, it, and it's a moving thing. It's like a driver, right? Risk tolerance. Okay. Here's a corner. I'm about to approach What's the, my risk tolerance? Is this the install lap on the first practice of the weekend? There's a different risk tolerance for this corner than if I'm in second place on the last lap to win the 24 hours of Daytona. It's the same corner. It's the same car. It's the same tires. But your risk tolerance changes. For a strategist, it changes also. And it changes during the race. But it certainly also globally changes from race to race. When you enter the Indy 500... I guarantee you every strategist risk tolerance, it, they're, they're willing to take much more risk in that race on a strategic standpoint than any other race. I, I, I'm pretty sure every driver would say, I'd rather win the Indy. If I could only win one, I'd rather win the Indy 500 than the championship. So <laughs> yeah. you're not thinking about points when you enter Indy. Oh, I got to get a good points day. No, <laughs> nobody cares about a points day at Indy. Yeah. So your risk tolerance as a strategist goes way up. Brian Herta, it's win or not. And that's what makes Indy as a race so cool because everybody is gambling from the drivers to the strategists because all that matters is winning that race. A good points day is terrible. They, I mean, they don't <laughs> even have a podium. It's just one guy. Yeah. Second, <laughs> third, don't even get the, get champagne or, or skim milk. Even they get nothing. <laughs> And Sam, you, you know, you touched on doing club races. Yeah. One of the things that I find really fascinating about Indy is, you know, you go into a 30 minute SCCA race, you know, the strategy is pretty simple. Go as fast as you can. Go. Don't go. stop. Yes. More go. And, yes. yes, exactly. <laughs> Try not to suck more than you have to. <laughs> Daytona or Le Mans 24 hour races, obviously they're endurance races and strategy plays a bigger role in all of that kind of stuff. But the Indy 500 is kind of like, take Lamar Daytona 24-hour race, compress it down to 500 miles, and then drive as fast as you can is kind of the strategy. Yep. Short of Jeff coming along and going, yeah, but if we did this, or Brian Herter saying, if we did. So it's a, it's sort of like a, I think of the strategy for the Indy 500 is kind of like, and by the way, the adaptation that the driver needs to do. Like in a 24-hour race, you are the the amount as a driver that you adapt is massive. Now compress that into just 
500 miles and what are they doing 500 miles in like two and a half, three hours now, yeah. these days, like <laughs> three hours or so. So you compress it down to that. So all the strategy from a 24 hour race, all the adapting that the driver needs to do, all of that stuff, all the, the decisions around, I'm going to take this gamble. I'm not going to take this gamble. All of that stuff you've just compressed into 500 miles. So it's like, it's this really strange um, combination of 24 hour race and a 30 minute sprint race. Yep. I, I think mean, there's, Go ahead, Sam. Oh, no, I was going to say, I think what's one of the things that's so fascinating about the race for me and about that win in particular is that, you know, until I got into the business, I didn't realize that I had no clue because nobody talks about this because of course they don't. But I had no clue that, you know, not just is it a month full of blah, blah, blah and run up and lapping. You go out and you lap by yourself, qualify by yourself. But, you know, the teams will start prepping a car weeks and weeks and weeks in advance and taping it up and the way, you know, body fit, everything down. Like you can see visibly the difference in how the bodywork fits on the prime car versus the backup car for a driver if you walk through the pits. And, and there's all these little things that you don't learn about how the place works until you go there and see some bit of it. And, 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 and that, I mean, what is it like, you know, th that race? So in 2016, I, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to be there because that place, the place sold out in the beginning of May. And then what was it like four days before sold out general admission as well? It's the only time in history that the, that the speedway has been completely sold out and something like the numbers worked out. Cause it's like 350,000 people. You know, it's, it's like more than twice as large as the university of Michigan stadium, the football stadium, which is the largest football stadium in the country. And something, the statistic was something like one out of every thousand people in America was at Indianapolis that day. Cause it was, and it had never been that packed. It, does it get weird when you're there in that just teeming mass of humanity, like on the wall, in the car, whatever it is? I mean, either one of you. I, how does it yes. work? Weird. Yes. I'll, <laughs> I'll go back to my Michele Alboreto yeah. thing again, right? Okay, so here's a guy, the Trafosi and Monza, and you pick it. He's been in some big right. time events. Monaco, you know, Ferrari driver big, big crowds in Formula One. He's seen it all yeah. over his, whatever, 15 years of Formula One racing. Comes to Indy. We practice like you do. Race morning, you walk out from Gasoline Alley, which are the garages, and you walk under this big archway that is in the middle of the pit lane, basically, and you walk out onto the pit lane. And you can't really see any of all of these 300 and whatever thousand people, really, because you're in the garage area, right? And so me and him are walking out to go to the car. Yep. An hour. You got to do driver introductions and all that. And we, me and him are walking out talking about whatever, probably some race strategy stuff or what we expect to happen. And we walk out through Gasoline Alley and we pop out to the pit straight. And he stops and he looks <laughs> into turn one and he looks at the grandstands into turn four. And he goes, holy smokes. Looking at all the people just packed and he goes this is a really big deal <laughs> and i'm like this is impressing him this guy's hard to impress with what the he's seen grandstands with the roofs and how just all those yeah. people underneath it and i ross yeah. is it weird in the car it's gotta be right actually can i can i take a kind of a little story a, a tangent here for a story no um, i'm not gonna let you know yes please tell me about the time you drove in the indy 500 ross i'm no, not gonna no, shut no, you up this is, this is not me. This is, this is, uh, I'm at a race last year with Bill Riley. 
Okay. Father Bob Riley. Later, can you tell me about the time you drove in the 500? Because I was wondering. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, someday I'll tell you. Yes. Uh, when I, uh, We've established so, you're going to die soon. I need to hear this stuff today. Go on. Please. So, I'm listening. Bill Riley's father, Bill Riley, who runs Riley Motorsports and, you know, wins everything he does. And Jeff, I think probably your strongest, best, most interesting and fun competitor. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Bill's but his guy. father, Bob, was the designer designer of all the Riley cars and designed uh, he, he designed AJ Foyt's Coyote cars in the, I guess that would have been 70s, 70s maybe yeah. into the 80s, somewhere yeah. in there. Well, and, so you know your, your, your Rick Mears story about getting to ride around with Rick Mears? I got some time at the drafting board with Bob Riley. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that was my <laughs> Same Rick kind Mears. of thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, Exactly. Bob Riley, legendary. So Bill Riley is telling me the story that about Bob Riley designing the new Coyote IndyCar for AJ Foyt. AJ comes to the shop, uh, and this is like this is the new car before Indy. So AJ shows up, he gets into the car, and Bob Riley goes, Does it fit? And AJ sitting in the car going, Okay, yeah. And you know, this is before they started custom making seats and everything for drivers. AJ just sit in the tub and go, yeah, I can drive this thing. And then he goes, uh, I can't, I can't move my hand, my arm to shift the shifter over here on the right hand side. I can't, there's not enough room for me to move my arm. And Bob's like, Oh, okay. I'll have to redesign and rebuild the, the linkage. And then AJ goes, wait a minute. He reaches over with his left hand and he shifts and he goes, I can do, I can just shift with my left hand, reach across the cockpit and do it. But then the best part was, AJ's sitting in there and he goes, Bob, if we took the mirrors off the car, would we be able to go faster down the straightaways? And Bob goes, yeah, but you're not going to know where anybody is behind you. And AJ goes, it's okay. At Indy 500, if somebody's trying to pass AJ, I will know. The crowd will tell me. <laughs> God. Because <laughs> everybody would be on their feet. Right. And AJ go, oh, there must be somebody behind me then. So That's great. That's a great way to kind of think about the atmosphere, the just, it, it's, it's, well, you know, if you've been to a huge sporting event, at least double it. Yeah. Like it's, it's that kind of thing. And here's the thing that I think is interesting going back to Rossi is I don't know. I don't know if he knew the impact this was going to have on his life. I don't think he did. I've, I've read, I've read interviews with him and people who know him have told me that he had no clue. He didn't have any clue what the 500 meant when he showed up. Yeah. Yeah. Just but does surprise. anybody who hasn't won it? No, I don't think so. Everybody how, how says could that. You? I mean, how could you? How could you? Until it happens. Yeah. 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 Until it happens. Elio drove with Colin this year and they t told him stories and stuff like that. And he is still, I mean, he's won it four times. Yeah. Okay. That is, you know, still the most amazing thing for him and he's still at awe that he actually got to win that race one time what other race in the country let alone the world where when you win it you get paraded around the media for the entire country for the week that follows i mean like uh, for the, the year the gear basically yeah that, <laughs> yeah that doesn't happen i mean yeah. more people saw what marcus er marcus erickson what one two years ago three years ago whatever it was yeah more people saw that guy's face in the the, the week and a half after he won that thing than in the five years before that. And, you know, he came out of F1 and did, like, mm, things. Like, I just... Look, look at what happened to Sato when he won it yeah. in Japan. You know, yeah. it, 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 I mean, he was, like... Uh, yeah. He was 
a big he time could have been guy. the emperor of Japan. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. And so there that that goes back to Rossi again, he might not have known what the impact was going to be on his life, but he certainly knew that there was he was in the most important race he had ever been in. And, and at the end of the day, as a race driver, it's I mean, there's there does come a time it's like it's a race. Yeah. I, like whether it's you know, if Alexander Rossi showed up for an SCCA club race, he would want to win it. Oh, like, yeah. Just as bad. I mean, that's what makes somebody like Rossi him. Uh, uh, you know, we were talking about, you know, before we got started here, just kind of the, you know, little prep. And my prep was, so in 2005, when Alexander was 13 years old, the first time he drove a car coming out of karting, he came to my Speed Seekers driver development camp. And we spent three days with him and three other drivers. <laughs> and I just kind of went back and looked at my my notes and the little report. And the best part, there was this photo of him at 13. And, and you, know, I, you know, I can remember watching that race going, oh, please win this race because I want to say that I coached Alexander Rossi <laughs> the first time he drove a car. <laughs> right? So I was like jumping up and down watching this thing. And, but, you know, he's kind of got a, well, like we all did at 13. I can't remember that. We didn't have cameras, but uh, as Sam will keep reminding me. It's not me as much fun if you make fun of yourself, Ross. It has to be me or Jeff. Okay, we, go ahead. We know yeah. how to make you feel terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's kind of got that goofy 13-year-old face. And yep. then it's, you know, to kind of go, okay, a slightly <laughs> older version of that is on a Borg Warner trophy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's... I think I go back to that risk tolerance thing again, right? Is we we just talked about how important and how impactful in your life it is, and I think you 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 don't understand it until you win it, but you do understand that this is the most important race you're going to run. Rossi knew that. Brian Herda knew that. Brian Herda knew that. He, I'm sure, he didn't care if he won any other races that year. If he won the Indy 500, done and dusted, the year's been made. Career maybe been made for a guy like, for a driver who wins it, that that sustains your career for the next five years, for sure. You're going to be paid to drive Indy cars for a long time. You win the Indy 500. So here they are. They have a bad fuel stop because they had some refueling issues on stop one. And he goes to the back. They think they fix it. He does another stop on about lap 60, Rossi does, and it's not fixed. And they go to the back again. Now they really fix it, but they're essentially 30th or whatever. Indy is a track position race. It, you're not going to drive through 32 of the best oval racers with the best cars and the best strategists and the best engineers in the world. You're not just going to rarely are you just going to drive past all those guys and take the lead and win the race. AJ Foyt maybe, but <laughs> nowadays with spec cars and engines and yeah. performance balancing, not going to happen. You're not going to be that much better than the next guy. So they had to figure out they could, they could work their way up and maybe they were a 10th place car or they could roll the dice. And I would guarantee you, that there wasn't even a one hesitant. Brian Herta didn't go, oh, what should we do? It was just, you're rolling the dice. Every decision, you're rolling the dice. Driver, engineer, strategist. 
And so they were like, okay, we just got to, we got to figure out how to, how to do this. And it became very obvious on before halfway, they had to make one less pit stop than everybody else. That was the only way they were going to win it. One less pit stop. Well, how do you do that? Well, all you you just have to make it to the end, make enough fuel mileage where you just don't have to make that extra pit stop. You know, people who watch modern Formula One see that strategy played out. Where the, is it a two-stopper or a three-stopper? Well, at Indy, they were trying to do one less stop, which would get them the track position. And you can do that. You can, the yellow comes out, everybody pits. You can not pit. Now you're leading or you're at the front, right? Because you didn't pit. Everybody else did. But eventually you got to pay the piper and you're going to have to stop. What they did is position it right where they didn't stop. Everybody else did. That got them the track position at the front. Now they had to go again longer than everybody else and make to, to win it. They had to stay there and then make that last stop longer than everybody else or that last stint longer than everybody else. So that whole thing, their gamble started lap 70, 80. <laughs> Out of 200. Yeah. And they were forced into it because, you know, because of the fueling issue. They got it. They had to get track position somehow. And that's the way they did it early. And then, they, and then you throw into the mix the variable that you can't control. What if there's a yellow flag? Exactly. And I, you could gamble, 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 and you're in like perfect position. And then a yellow comes out and it kind of neutralizes everything and everybody's on the exact same strategy. With eight laps to go, I'm just looking at my notes. With eight laps to go, most people who knew they were going to have to stop again, stopped. Which was confusing to me because if they would have got a yellow, they probably could have made it. So normally the strategy there is, is to stay out. If you can make it on a yellow, you pit on the last lap, like the white flag lap you pit on, right? Because you wait hoping for that yellow. A lot of them didn't, which gave which put Rossi in second place because a lot of those guys pitted. With five to go, he was second. With four to go is when he took the lead. And, you know, he was running two 14s back, you know, with four or five laps to go. When other guys were, the guys chasing him were running 221 laps. <laughs> I mean, and then Herta just kept on telling him, clutch and coast, clutch and coast. So he was going down the straightaways, yeah. putting in the clutch and coasting through the corners. And then letting the clutch out and driving down the straightaway. He finished. He was out of fuel at the finish, by the way. Yeah. He, he, it, like on the cool down lap, right? Like it just no, dry. No, coming out of four. Really? He crossed, <laughs> he crossed the line and I looked this up. Brian Herta even said it. He crossed the start finish line to take the checkered at 133.7 miles an hour out of gas. A hundred miles an hour slower than he qualified on both. Okay. So, so right think now. about that, right? So like, this is what gets me. And at the end of the day, like all of this, like we, we, we just spent a bunch of time talking about the logistics. We spent a bunch of time talking about what it is to be in the car on, on the limit for that long, what it is to be in those people, what it is to be in the single most important race of your life, definitely of that year, definitely of the last month. Right. And, and yet all of that, like the, 
all of that together in the same ball, in the same place, at the same time, is somehow more than the sum of the parts, right? And in reality, you have this group of people, all these things on the line, you know, seven figures of worth of money to get you there, months and months of prep, sponsor deals that literally start and planning that starts the day after last year's race. All that adds up. And then in the middle, it's all funneled through one, one dude in the car and a handful of people on the wall and a bunch of decisions and a bunch of gambles in front of hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people on television. And you're just a bag of chunky marinara strapped into the thing, driving around at the limit of whatever you got in your brain and whatever's in the tire and whatever's in the car and also how much fuel you can use, all that stuff coming together. And then you can lose it in the last corner. You can lose it, you know, tense before you cross the finish. Like, there's so many things that go wrong. It could all just blow up at the last minute. It's nuts. Well, and it went wrong for 32 others. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 And always I mean, does. Every at, time. Do, right. Does anybody remember who finished second through 33rd? No. Nope. And that's what's kind of cool about it from a strategy standpoint. Because if you get it wrong, I mean... <laughs> You want to get it right. If you win, you're a hero. Brian right, Herta, right, everybody right, knows right. about that. You get it wrong at Indy, and it's like, as long as you went for it, nobody's going to be mad at you. Yeah. You know, it, it's, 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 if Herta would have decided, okay, well, darn it. Mm, yeah, well, we're going to pit with everybody, and we finished 10th, and that was a good solid day. Nobody would be happy with a 10th there. Pick like Hinchcliffe, 30 to go, Hinchcliffe decides to go, or his guys decide to go flat out. New, New Garden flat out. They're three to four laps short, they say. Their engineers, their strategists are telling them you're three to four laps short. Go as hard as you can. So they committed to that. So they were going for it. A yellow would have come out. If a yellow would have come out, they likely would have won, and we would be having a different topic today. We wouldn't be talking about how Rossi won it. We'd be talking about how... Hinchcliffe took the gamble and they stayed out and they won it on speed. And that was amazing, but, but at and, least they went for it. But in, and in that, that's amazing because in no way does it take away from what Herta and Rossi achieved, right? No way. Like there is no bad way to win that race. Just as you know, <laughs> win is a win anywhere else. I mean, and, and the idea too, that, you know, there, I mean, you mentioned Hinchcliffe who had famously had a pretty massive accident. He ended up with a, a push rod through his, I think it was femoral artery. Um, yeah. You know, they had to be, cut out of the car several years ago, but the fact that you're still in an environment where one of the last racing environments where things can and do go drastically wrong in a way that can really, really hurt you and end a career. And that doesn't mean it's a positive, just that it's a piece of the puzzle. I, so much of everything we've been kind of orbiting here, I, you mentioned, Ross, you mentioned Mears, Rick, um, a while back, and I, I've interviewed him a couple of times. And at one point, I mean, the dude is just the absolute coolest cucumber I've ever met. But he was a guy I've ever met. Yeah, he's a, yeah. Californian as hell in the best classy, calm, chill, cool way. It's fine, man. He was, we were in the paddock and he was wearing sunglasses on a cloudy day and a hat. And I was like, I'm not cool enough to talk to you, but I'm going to ask you some questions. And he, he, say, he said something along the lines that kind of echoed what we, we hit earlier. The idea that none of this makes any sense until you see it. And you kind of process everything that's coming through it. He said, you know, everybody, I said, do, do people who've never been here have a lot of success come here and, and just, you know, kind of look at it and go, screw it. It's left turns. Who cares? It's an oval and whatever. He said, some of them do. And, you know, then they usually, you know, you feel that way until you hang it in the fence and 
And then you think differently about it. And he said, the really smart guys, the guys who show up and who don't make a mistake because they're smart and patient with it and being patient and thoughtful at the same time. And he said, sometimes you get unlucky. And the fact that there's so much on that fulcrum, right? It's, it's, it's insane. It's so cool. So Sam, uh, and, and I want to keep going back to this the tweet <laughs> or whatever it is after the race, yeah, but, yeah. you know, the uh, uh, driving a race car at the limit, any top driver will tell you it is easier to do that than to drive something mm -hmm. less than the limit. Yeah. And you know, a great example of that is, I can't remember the year, but Ayrton Senna leading the Monaco Grand Prix. And I don't know when that was like 91 or something like that. Yeah. And he's got this like 50 second lead over second place. And the crew's like, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. He slows down and he crashes the car. Yeah. Walks yeah. back and you know, walk like Senna, Senna couldn't drive. I don't think Senna could have done what Rossi did. And, and, you know, I mean, maybe that puts it into perspective what Rossi actually did. Now, do I also kind of turn that around and go, hmm, how bad does Alexander Rossi want to win, want to win the Indy 500 on flat out speed? Oh, man, come on. He has to. Yeah. And all of them have to, right? They all have to want to have some great big hero moment, right? But I almost think that he he may want it more than anybody else because he's won it this way. Now I want to win it this way because I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be my age and, and go. Well, nobody yeah, does. Wanna... Ross. <laughs> nobody wants to do that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. God. Uh, you know, I said Jeff there. I, I didn't yeah. say that. That wasn't me. That was Jeff. Yeah, Jeff yeah, said yeah, that. Perfect. Jeff, why are you so mean to Ross, Jeff? Yeah. It, you know, I mean, I could point out that Jeff is just like a couple of months. For a few months or whatever. No, it is. Jeff's my yeah. age. I'm like 20. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> same color as mine. I'm Jeff. Old. Yeah. It's brown. I'm old. We're, the, we're the same age. It's fine. Hey, so that Ross, so that's a good question. So Rossi wins the thing. He gets the big trophy. Well, he gets a, what do they call it? Baby the Borg. Yeah. Baby Borg. But he gets his face on the big trophy and he gets the milk and the wreaths and the New York trip and all of that kind of stuff and a career for years. Deserved all of that. Would he have, rather won it with a, I don't know, pick your, it's happened before, daring last lap pass on the outside Dario Franchitti Sato style? Would he have rather, if he could win it, only win it once, which one would he choose? And I have, you answer that, but I have a situation that happened to me in road racing and we'll see. But what, <laughs> you think he would take, which way would he have rather won it? Or does he care? I believe that most drivers, and I'm not, I, there are some drivers that don't care. A win is a win is a win. Like who cares, right? That's all that, all that matters. But I think most drivers want to be, at the end of the day, they want to know that they won because they were just faster than everybody else. Now, oh, well, I, and actually, I shouldn't say that necessarily because, you know, Jackie Stewart was famous for saying, and I think it was Jackie Stewart, but some other people as well, uh, is, you know, win at the slowest speed possible. Well, that's what Alexander Rossi did. Right. And, and uh, but you say, here's, here's my thing. Drivers say they want to be the fastest. How about being the best? Hmm. Well, see, because that's the thing. The, yeah. You know, he, he, being the fastest was actually detrimental to being the best. That, that, you know, when, right. So here's, you know, maybe this is the bigger topic, but, but, Drivers all have different motivations. You know, 
famously Gilles Villeneuve, he almost didn't care if he won or not. He just wanted to be the fastest. He just <laughs> wanted to be. And Villeneuve could not have won that race. Right. Uh, so, you know, I look at people like Rick Mears and Scott Dixon and, you know, they won a lot and continue to win a lot. And it's because they are, Jeff, as you point out, they are the best. Right. Because they know they, they more often than other drivers get that right balance between the risk and the reward and the decisions, all that kind of stuff. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, what's the movie? Uh, Colin always quotes the start of the movie. He goes, whatever racing race car driver, da, 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 speed is a byproduct. You know, the, the, yeah, I can't remember the movie, but anyway, I don't know. Every time I get into a race car, I quote the little mermaid, but that Uh, just shows why I'm not Colin. So I think think that was the road runner. (laughs) The road runner. Speed is a byproduct. I mean, it is, it's part of being the best. Yeah. And, and, but as a driver, I think, you know, if you've won it one way, you want to win it the other way to prove that you are the best. Sure. You're not just the guy that knows how to win on fuel mileage. Yep. So I, I think there's something in Alexander Rossi that, I don't know. Maybe Alex. Do you think Alex is ever going to listen to this? Hi, Alex. If he is, yeah. sure, why not? <laughs> I think so. Let us know. Let, let, us, let know. us know. On, yeah. on that note, we should we should probably we should probably wind down. But what's what what I'm left with with all of this is just this reminder that anywhere you look in this stuff, there is a deeper story, right? Anywhere you look at in all of this, in motorsport, in people, in athletes, in competition, and even just the decisions we make under pressure, there's always more threads to pull with this. And, and, and what I love about the Rossi story is that it is on the surface, not an interesting question, right? Oh, he got lucky in a certain way and they made some smart calls and they got unlucky in other ways. And then he won. And that's how you describe it. If you don't know anything and you're bored by it. And if you go to the other side of the coin, it's so much was going on. And so much of it comes down to who we are when things get crunchy, right? I, I don't know. That's. I think this was a good start. <laughs> yep, yep. I don't care what competition you're in. If there's 32 other guys trying to beat you, and I don't care whether it's you know pick your competition. Yeah, getting the best grades in your college class, and there's 32 other people. Being whatever older the than competition Ross. it is, right? Exactly. If there's people trying <laughs> to do that better than you, yeah. you don't win that by luck. Right. You do not. Well, being around as long as Sam uh, makes up for me to be around, I've seen a lot of brilliant <laughs> drivers and Alex's drive at the Indy 500 that year. Yeah, maybe a little biased, uh, but he's he's one of the best. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll take the other, from a driving side, I would agree. From a strategy side and coaching side, what Brian Herta did to... Yeah give him that confidence. It's a team sport. And that was one of the better ones. And Brian's had some great strategy calls when he was running Colton lately. And, and even this year, you know, he's, he, he, he's really good at being that NFL type quarterback, you know, inspire confidence and, and, and making the right calls at the right time and knowing how to get his guys to get it done. He's oh. one of the best. It was Man. cool to see. At some point, at some point, we need to talk about Colton Herta because that's a whole other thing that I find just fascinating. But for the meantime, guys, this was great. Thanks for taking the time. And everybody who's, who's listening, and Alex, if you're out there, we'll uh, see you next week. It's not the car. 
Have fun. Have fun. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>